All right. Well, listen. Uh, thanks. Well, I'll come back to that. Sorry. Hang on. Let me let me uh, explain that because that's going to take a few minutes, and uh, I just want to uh, let you know where we're headed here over this next little while. We are beginning a study today that is uh, is in as you can maybe guess, 2 Corinthians. Two summers ago uh, at Coastal, we studied 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote, the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, This summer, we're going to do 2 Corinthians. Now, for one reason or another, I'm not sure entirely why, this one seems to be the one that gets neglected because, well, we already did one to Corinth, I guess, and so there are so many others, but I'm, I'm glad we're not doing that. We're going to move through this letter, and this is going to take us from now until the second Sunday in September. So I will say this over and over again throughout this series of studies, but I realize we're coming up on summer, all right? So what I want to encourage you to do is you can get online, get on the website, gocoastal.org, and you can listen to, if you just as soon watch Pastor Sean as me, you can do that. There's video of the Yorktown messages, and there is audio of our campus here. So you can get on there, you can kind of keep with us. I think it's really important when we're doing a series of studies like this that you kind of keep in the flow of things, all right? So you don't just kind of come and hear uh, random uh, sermons or what may seem random because you have uh, missed a couple. So uh, we understand you're gone. I'm going to be gone a little too. So uh, at any rate, uh, I hope you will do that. Uh, This is a letter to a church that really struggled. Of all of the churches in uh, the New Testament that Paul wrote to, it seems that the one at Corinth uh, struggled the most in terms of uh, having sin issues in the church and so on. There was just a lot of difficult stuff. And there were some interpersonal conflicts that were happening, and people had come to Corinth after he was there the first time challenging even Paul's authority to be there and to say what he said. So uh, First Corinthians or Second Corinthians addresses a lot of that. What we're going to do is watch a video. We won't watch this every week because it's eight minutes long, but it's going to give you an eight-minute summary of what Second Corinthians is all about, right? So you can kind of have the big picture right up front. So here we go. Letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called 2nd or 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, there are multiple clues within this letter that it's not the second thing he ever wrote to the church of ancient Corinth. Paul started this Jesus community in Corinth some time ago on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the story in the book of Acts chapter 18. And after moving on, Paul got a report that things were not going well there. So he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to correct these problems, and it appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching in that letter and rebelled against his authority. And so we learn in this letter that Paul had followed up in person with what he calls the painful visit, and after that he sent a letter which he says was written with anguish and tears. And so after all these measures, most but not all of the Corinthians realized their arrogance and they apologized to Paul They wanted to reconcile. And so Paul wrote this letter to assure them of his love and commitment. The letter's been designed with three main sections, each addressing a distinct topic. So Paul first finalizes his reconciliation with the Corinthians. Then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses the topic of forgotten generosity. And in the final chapters, Paul challenges the remaining Corinthians who still reject him. Let's dive in and you'll see how it all works. So Paul opens up by thanking the God of all mercy and comfort who brought peace and encouragement to him and the Corinthians during this time of division and dispute. 
He acknowledges that things have been tense since his painful visit, and he makes clear he's forgiven them. He wants an open and honest relationship. But why had they rejected Paul in the first place? Well, we discover later in this letter that the Corinthians had disregarded Paul as a leader. He was poor. He earned a meager living through manual labor. He was under constant persecution and suffering. He was often homeless. And to top it off, he wasn't a very impressive public speaker. And so once the Corinthians were exposed to other more wealthy, impressive Christian leaders, they started to think less of Paul. They were actually ashamed of him. So Paul responds first by showing that their elevation of these leaders simply because of their wealth and eloquence is a betrayal of Jesus. It shows a totally distorted value system. True Christian leadership, Paul says, is not about status or self-promotion. Paul depicts himself and the other apostles as captive slaves to King Jesus, who's leading them on a procession of triumph. Paul's job isn't to be impressive, but rather to point people to the one who is. Jesus. He then alludes to the recent demand of the Corinthians that he provide some letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials, and this is ridiculous to Paul. Their church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it, and so he says they are his proof of genuine leadership. They are his letter of recommendation. He cleverly quotes from the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, saying that God's spirit has written his letter of recommendation on their hearts as his new covenant people. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. Now, the mention of the new covenant, it leads Paul into a long comparison between the old covenant between God and Israel that was mediated by Moses and the new covenant between God and the Corinthians mediated by Jesus and the spirit. The old covenant made at Mount Sinai, it was truly glorious. It made Moses himself shine with God's glory, but that glory eventually faded. Not to mention the fact that the laws of that covenant were ineffective at truly transforming Israel. But the new covenant, by comparison, is even more glorious because the resurrected Jesus is the very glory of God and he lives on forever. And it's his spirit that's now transforming people to become more faithful just like Jesus himself. Now, this all sounds amazing. I mean, who doesn't want to share in God's own glory? But Paul goes on to show how the paradox of the cross turns upside down the Corinthians' ideas of glory and success. After all, Jesus' glorious exaltation as king took place through his suffering, execution, and death. On the cross, Jesus revealed God's salvation. He died for the sins of the world to reconcile people to God. But the cross does even more. It reveals God's character. He's a being of utter self-giving, suffering love that seeks the well-being of others. The cross also reveals a new cruciform way of life. And Paul's goal is that his life and ministry imitates the cross. So although his apostolic career has been marked by humility, suffering, by poverty, it was all to serve the Corinthians. And so when they disapprove of Paul's poverty and suffering, they disapprove of Jesus too. Paul's way of life and leadership is actually the proof that he authentically represents the crucified and risen Jesus. Paul really wants to reconcile with the Corinthians, but he won't let things lie until they've been transformed and embrace this upside-down paradox of the cross. After this passionate appeal, Paul moves on to address the topic of forgotten generosity. So the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they had fallen into poverty due to a famine. And Paul was raising money among the new churches that he started, full of mostly non-Jews. They would all send a relief gift as a symbol of their unity in the Messiah, Jesus. And so many of his churches, they were thrilled to give. But the Corinthians, in the midst of all this conflict with Paul, hadn't saved up for the gift. 
And for Paul, this isn't just about money. It's another sign that the Corinthians have not been transformed by the gospel about Jesus, which at its heart is a story of generosity. Paul says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He's telling the story of the gospel through financial metaphors. Jesus gave up his glorious honor, or wealth, and he lowered himself to die like a poor slave so that other people who are impoverished through sin and death can be exalted and become wealthy through the riches of God's grace. To be a Christian is to let this story sink deep into your mind and heart, letting it transform you into someone who's more generous, more willing to share your life and resources to help others. In the final section of the letter, Paul focuses on the main source of his conflict with the Corinthians, that group of impressive leaders that he sarcastically calls super apostles. So they came to Corinth promoting themselves and bad-mouthing Paul as a poor, unsuccessful leader. And at the risk of sounding self-promoting, Paul says, do these guys really want to compare credentials? He can totally take them on. Are they Jewish Bible experts? Well, so is Paul. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. He has the whole Bible memorized. Do they want to brag about their superior knowledge of Jesus? Paul has actually seen and hung out with the risen Jesus. He's actually had visions of Jesus' heavenly throne room. But more importantly, Paul has given his entire life to the mission of Jesus. He sacrificed comfort and stability, and he never asked the Corinthians for money. Unlike the super apostles who charged a lot, Paul earned his own living. But, Paul says, he refuses to brag about these accomplishments because these aren't the things that really matter as a Christian. Instead, what he'll brag about is how flawed and how weak he is because it's in those inadequacies that he discovers the love and mercy of Jesus. Or as Jesus once told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect through weakness. Paul concludes the letter with a sober warning to the Corinthians. They need to check themselves. Their contempt for Paul, his way of life, their love for these super apostles, it all shows that they don't grasp who Jesus is on a fundamental level. They're not living like transformed followers of Jesus, and so he invites them once again to humble themselves before the love of Jesus. 2 Corinthians gives us a really unique window into the life of Paul and the paradox set before us by the cross of Jesus. The cross challenges our values, our ways of seeing the world. We value success, education, wealth, but God values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross also unleashes the transforming power and presence of the Spirit to empower Jesus' followers to take up his cruciform way of life and make it their own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. That, ah, I did. That, uh, maybe I'll try and get that printed out, right? So you can kind of have a copy of it. So there's a lot here, a whole bunch, and that's why we're going to take, uh, you know, all summer long to do this. We are going at about a pace of a, of a chapter each week, and uh, so you can be reading ahead and planning your way. Uh, you will perhaps know by now that I find it difficult to take excessively long sections of Scripture, and uh, so I tend to take things from these chapters and hopefully will stay uh, in the context of what you have now understood about this. Today I want to talk about something that is 
that affects all of us, and it's, it is, uh, it's a struggle because we don't understand why this has to happen. We don't understand why, uh, well, why there's affliction and trouble. As you can see, the title of the message is, Why is Life So Hard Sometimes? Why does it have to be that way? And the simple answer is life is hard because we live in a broken world. The world is broken by sin. The world is not, we don't live in the manner in which God originally intended us to live when he created the world. So there is this great sense of something is wrong and we, we long to understand not only how to fix it, but what to, to make sense of what it's about. So I'm going to spend my time this morning beginning in verse 3 and just going down through verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to talk a bit about suffering and why does God permit and sometimes even bring suffering into our lives? What is the purpose? What is his point? But I want to begin uh, in verse 3 and just read these, these two verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I, I want to just acknowledge, first of all, the reality of suffering. Now, there are groups even within what we would... Uh, generously describe Christianity who will tell you that if you're suffering, something's wrong with your faith. If things aren't continually getting progressively better and better and better and better, something's wrong in your growth with God. If you are not uh, prospering, it's because something is missing in your attitude, in your thinking about the things of God. I'm here to tell you that the reality is we all face suffering. We all face trouble. Trouble is inescapable in the fallen world in which we live. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, and I don't suspect that's really a surprise to anybody, right? I mean, we've all faced various sorts of suffering. So he, he says God comforts us in all our affliction. I, I think there is a sense behind that that we recognize there, there's trouble that has to be addressed. Job chapter 5 and verse 6, Job said, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now listen, I know Job was a guy who went through an awful lot of trouble, and it was, it was not, as we learned by the end of the book of Job, due to something he did wrong. It was due to a a whole separate conversation that was going on in heaven between Satan and God, and God was proving Satan wrong. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job 14, verse 1, man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. Now that's a little pessimistic, right? That's, that seems like, wow, uh, he had it really good up until Satan came in and caused an uproar. And then by the end of his life, it went really well. But there was a big season of years in the middle where Job really felt like, man, life is just awful. It's just full of trouble. Paul's approach in 2 Corinthians is not 
to try and construct a theology that denies the reality of trouble or suffering for the Christian. Rather, he wants the readers of, of this letter, he wants the Corinthians to set their theology in the context of Christ's suffering and Christ's consolation. Jesus suffered. Why should we expect that we're not going to? Now, he is talking primarily about his suffering as an apostle, his suffering as a Christian. But I think the general principles can still apply. So, so there is this inevitable sense of trouble. There is this sense in which we can just expect that it's part of our reality. The most difficult part of that, that I find for people who talk with me about it, is that sometimes, in addition to that, God seems distant. God seems like, is, is he really noticing what's going on with me? Job felt that way. Why, Job 13, 24, why do you hide your face? and count me as your enemy. David said, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And in Psalm 44, he said, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? You know, when we're in the middle of struggle, and when we're in the middle of of pain and affliction, and things are really hard for us right now, we can sometimes forget the presence of God. We can sometimes feel like God is really distant. This next one Nate addressed last week. Do bad things happen to good people? Well, yes, they did to Jesus, who is the good person. The reason I, I keep that in here, though, is I really think that we... We have bought a little bit into the idea of karma, which is not a Christian principle. If I raise my kids right, my kids will turn out well. If I treat my spouse right, my spouse will always treat me right. If I work hard at my job, I'll keep it and retire with enough money to live on after I retire. If I do the right thing, then the right things will happen to me. That's karma. That's not, that's the teaching of karma. That's not what's found in the scriptures. I do the right thing regardless of the consequences, regardless of the ramifications of doing the right thing. Sometimes bad things happen to us or what we perceive to be bad, and some, many of them are in fact bad, because we live in a fallen world. Bad things do happen to all people, including people who are redeemed sinners living in a fallen world. It's, that's just the reality of trouble. Sometimes it gets so bad that Paul's words in verses 8 and 9 really ring true for us. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Paul was struggling so, had so many burdens, in his case, attached to his proclamation of the gospel as an apostle, that he, he just despaired of life itself. Surely, they thought, we're, we're not going to get out of this alive. And sometimes, in the middle of our, our stress and our trouble and our affliction, we don't see any way out. Well, before I talk about the help that we have in suffering, 
I want to, to give some of the purposes that I find in Scripture for suffering. And I'm going to go through these kind of quickly because I want to get to two specific purposes that God uh, revealed to the Corinthians through Paul here. But there are, there are a number of things in the Scripture that give us kind of general purposes for suffering. One, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, suffering tests the validity of our faith. 1 Peter, these are all in here, right? 1 Peter 1, uh, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering tests the validity of our faith. It doesn't test whether it's valid or not. It helps bring to the top the faith that we have. Testing helps clarify, if you will. And the testing takes the muck away, all the stuff that might make my faith seem cloudy to other people. It doesn't help God to know whether I have faith. God knows everything. He knows how deep my faith is. He's helping me to understand how deep does my faith really run, and he's helping my faith to be seen by others, helping it to be seen as genuine. Secondly, the second general purpose is to teach us not to trust worldly resources. You remember John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000? When his disciples came to him, Jesus, and, and said, listen, we've got all these people, we should send them home. Turns out there were 5,000 men and their families. We should send them home to eat. Jesus said, well, you feed them. <laughs> and there's interesting verses. In verses, in verses 5 and 6, it talks about the fact that Jesus said, well, he said, where are we to buy bread? He, he asked Philip, where are we supposed to buy bread so these people may eat? You know, and of course, if you're familiar with the story, Philip was like, well, how am I supposed to know? There's 5,000 people here. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He wanted Philip to recognize he didn't have the resources to take care of this issue. And Jesus tested him on it to trust him, to, to teach him not to trust in worldly resources, but to trust in him. Thirdly, to reveal to us what we really love. This is from Genesis 22. I'm not going to take time to put all that on the screen, but it's the story of Abram and God. When God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, who I promised you was the one. He was the heir I want you to take him now and go to a mountain that I'll tell you of when you get there, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice, a burnt offering on an altar that you will build to me. What an incredible thing. And so they go through that whole process, and, and uh, Abraham gets to the top of that mountain, and he ties up his son, and he sets him on the altar, and he gets the knife in the air, and God tells him, stop, for now I know. Again, it wasn't that God didn't know. It was to reveal to Abraham what he really loved. Did he love this son that he finally had after a hundred years of waiting? Did he love this son so much that he would not sacrifice him if God told him to? Did he love God? Did he love 
God entrusted him more than he loved his son. He revealed to Abraham what he really loved. Fourthly, I think it's not uncommon that God uses suffering to drive us to the scriptures. Psalm 119 has a whole bunch of verses in it that talk about the word of God. Every verse in the in this uh, psalm talks in some way or another about the word of God, but these two in particular uh, address this issue. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And verse 71, I think, is the other one. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Much as we don't want to admit it, sometimes God brings some affliction into our life so that it'll drive us to the scriptures, so that we will look to learn what it is that God intends for us in this process. And the last general purpose is to strengthen us for greater usefulness. James chapter 1 talks about this, this uh, kind of growing process that takes place as God brings trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I know it's not a great encouragement to say you get, you get trials and you learn how to negotiate trials now so you can have bigger ones later. <laughs> that's, that's not usually what you say to encourage someone. But if you went to a gym, they would tell you that. You start lifting weights now, and I know it's going to hurt, but the more you do it, the more you'll be able to lift, and the more you do it, the more you'll be able to lift, and the same thing with running and all the other exercises. And when it comes to our physical exercise, we're like, okay, I'm in. But when it comes to our spiritual well-being, we're like, eh, I don't know. Sometimes God uses suffering to strengthen us for greater usefulness. But there are two specific purposes here that I think are really important. The first, well, they're found in, in uh, verse 4 to begin with, 2 Corinthians verse 4. God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And then he, he goes on, I won't take time to read it through, but he goes on to talk about sharing in Christ's suffering so that we can also share in Christ's comfort. God, in this context, brings suffering to us specifically so that we can comfort other people. There is a redemptive sense in our comfort. God brings uh, affliction into our life so that we can come alongside of someone else who is afflicted. You understand, I know, that when someone wants to be a comfort and an encouragement to you in a difficult time, we love any bit of comfort we can get from our brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you have someone who has been through exactly what you're going through or a very similar experience, there's some unique symbiotic kind of relationship there, right? There's something that says, man, this person not only loves me and loves Jesus, but they've been through this. Sometimes God gives to us suffering and affliction so that we can be a comfort to someone else. Believers receive comfort as a trust or a stewardship to be passed on to others. This purpose of comfort, one writer said, is to equip the comforted to be comforters. Don't get stuck at the point of being the comforted 
one. At some point in time, we need to begin to think about how am I going to now take the comfort I've received and look to comfort someone else. And then the last purpose of suffering, and the second one in this passage, is in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. We are looking at our suffering in the context of Christ's suffering. He suffered and he died, and God brought him back to life again, right? If God is able to do that, then he can bring comfort in the midst of my affliction. And it teaches me to depend on God more deeply when I face affliction. That's, that's pretty common, right? I've, I've talked to so many people over the years who say, man, it was really hard. It was really stressful. It was really an incredible experience. It was so hard. I don't know how I would have made it if I weren't a follower of Christ. I don't know how I'd have made it without God. We learn to depend on God. So let me give you a couple things to think about as it relates to help in your suffering. The first one may not be a help, but I think it can be. And that is this, suffering for your own actions does not carry with it offer of comfort. I think sometimes we forget and we think anytime something tough or difficult or bad is happening to me, oh, well, this is just suffering for the sake of Christ and I'm going to have to endure. And No, sometimes we're just suffering because we're an idiot. <laughs> sometimes we're suffering not because, as Hebrews 12 talks about, not because we're being disciplined by God for for our betterment. Sometimes we've just made really bad decisions and we're suffering for it. Don't, and, and I get this a lot from people, oh, oh, pastor, I, I'm in such a hard time, and they want help. I'm willing to help, but honestly, the, the first step to take to get uh, resolution from that kind of suffering is repentance. It's recognizing, I did this to me. God didn't bring this into my life. I made a stupid decision, or I, I did something I shouldn't have done, or there was sin in my life, and now I'm suffering the consequences. Sometimes the consequences will continue. If I've made uh, decisions in my life that have resulted in some disease that I carry in my body, I, I can't, just because I come to Christ doesn't mean I'm going to be relieved of any consequences of former decisions, right? Sometimes our suffering and our affliction is because of our own doing. God does not promise to bring comfort and to relieve us of that particular kind of affliction. In the extreme, you kill somebody, and then you get saved in prison. It doesn't mean they say, oh, well, good for you. Have a nice life and let you be. There are consequences, right? There are consequences to how we live. And sometimes we suffer for our own actions. But in those instances where, as followers of Christ, God has brought or permitted affliction into our life, here are two particular things. Verse 10. He, speaking of God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. That's a hopeful perspective. It will not always be like this. You might write in there an eternal perspective. Because 
at the very worst possible case scenario, if there is affliction in your life that you will endure until the day you die, as a follower of Christ, the day you die, your life really begins and you spend eternity in heaven. It will not always be like this. Suffering will not always endure. But in most cases, even in this life, this affliction will not be permanent. It is likely that if I have this hopeful perspective, it'll help me get a little perspective. Sometimes we're so in the weeds, we can't, we can't stand up long enough. I, years ago, I used to hunt and had a dog that, that I loved taking with me, and uh, I noticed something about her, because she wasn't really a well-trained hunting dog. She mostly just ran around in the brush, and if something got kicked up, great. Um, but when she got too far away and lost track of me, I noticed something she would do, if, especially if it was grass. She'd stop where she was, and she'd start jumping up in the air. And she was looking for me, right? And so sometimes this hopeful perspective, I, I stop in the middle of my affliction, and, I, and it, it causes me to look up. Let me, let me get my bearings. Where, where, where do I get closest to Jesus? Hopeful perspective. And prayerful friends, verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. One of the fascinating conundrums to me of the Christian life is the sovereignty of God and the prayers of God's people and how God promises to us that he uses the prayers of his people. This is why I harp constantly on the value of community. When we're in affliction, when we're in a, a period of suffering, when we're in a stressful time, our tendency is to withdraw, right? We, we're like, I don't want to be around people right now. That's when we need community the most. Believers are in a partnership with each other, and we must never view our suffering in isolation. Scriptures talk about we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. There is a sense in which when, when one member of the body suffers, isn't it 1 Corinthians, all the members suffer with it? There is a sense in which there is a, the community of believers, the prayerful friendships that we enjoy help us. In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. The purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God, but to exalt his power and submit to his will. So let me give you four thoughts to take with you. First, don't be surprised when you're afflicted. Peter said that when he wrote to his readers and said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Trials are not strange. They're not out of the ordinary. They are the reality. So, so don't be surprised. Secondly, trust the process. We didn't go to Romans 5. Jot it down and look at verses 3 through 5 later. There is a process involved that God is using uh, affliction and suffering to develop things in our life that include hope and hopefulness at the end. Trust the process. God knows what he's doing. Thirdly, seek hope and encouragement in the scriptures and in the family of believers. God has given you a church family. He has given you community. If you're not part of 
a smaller community of people even than our community here, we got to do that. We've got to get connected with other believers. Seek hope and encouragement. And then fourthly, lastly, look for someone to help. Look for someone that you can take the comfort you've received and pass it on to somebody else. How are you going to be invested in that? We're going to close with another video. I'm sorry, I know we're very video heavy today, and it, it may mean we're not going to have time to, to sing. But this is a video of one of our ministries, one of our mission outreaches at Coastal uh, called Full Circle Ministries. And they have just finished up with their last week. Uh, and dozens and dozens and dozens of people come every week to get a hot meal at a church that we've partnered with in the area uh, down in Newport News. And uh, there are people who really depend on that to get at least one good hot meal a week. And uh, this is a, an instance in a way in which we can, we can minister to people who are afflicted, people who are struggling and suffering. And sometimes those are the most effective ways that we can... Uh, that we can connect with other people and share the gospel is by meeting them in their affliction. So we're going to watch this uh, two-minute video, and uh, then I'm going to pray, and we'll be dismissed. Since the fall of 2017, Full Circle Ministries has provided hot meals, clothing, groceries, and other supplies, as well as transportation to the Hampton Roads community. Well, my passion is that everyone that comes through the door feels the love of Jesus through us. I think we have an excellent ministry here helping people who really need it. It's homeless and people that are just down on their luck. And that can happen to any of us. Their mission is to reach all of those who are in need while sharing the redeeming love of Christ. God is, is real in this world, you know, this is our heaven right here on earth. It seems to be, you know, the people that are love, you know, they, they're full of love and everything, you know, and, uh... Before I, before I came here, when I came here, uh, I was homeless, helpless, and what Full Circle has done for me, they have helped me with shoes, and most of all, hope. My vision is and prayer is that everyone would receive the gift of salvation. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed seeing the smile on the faces. I enjoyed talking to them about spiritual things, about Jesus, you know, because this is what it's all about, you know. You know, say God say, first seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all other things will be added unto you. So I seek the things of Jesus, and He blesses me with the full circle people, and I love it, you know. And I hope before I pray that you're, uh, you remember that uh, part of what you do when you give, even here in Gloucester, is so that Coastal can be invested in ministries like that. It's part of 10% of everything we give uh, is missions specific, goes out the door to serve other people. So thanks for your generosity in helping to be part of a ministry that perhaps many of you have never even uh, been able to see in person. All right, well, listen, I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to have a word of prayer, and uh, we're just going to go. Is that all right? Can we think we can walk out without music? I don't know if that's even possible. 
but uh, we're going to give it a shot. Let's talk to the Lord. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege of being here, the opportunity to come and worship and, and serve together. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we're, we're so grateful for the reality of who Jesus is and the, the, uh, the salvation that he brings and the hope that he brings to us even in the midst of affliction. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for uh, the privilege of being here today. And I pray that as we leave, you would be honored as we go and uh, now do the real work of ministry as we leave and go out into the world that you have brought us to, to take the love and the light and the life of Christ to other people who are around us. Help us to be faithful with that this week, I pray in Christ's name.